Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, the Inflation Reduction Act is law. Liz Cheney is defeated. Donald Trump is still under investigation. And Dr. Oz is still looking for crudite. Uh, then I chat with filmmaker Alex Holder, whose documentary about Trump's final days in office was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee. So that's fun. But first, Crooked's new podcast, Dare We Say, is officially here. In the first episode, out now, uh, best friends Josie Toda. Alicia Pasqual-Pena and Yasmin Hamidi give you 10 hilarious tips on how to celebrate your birthday. Uh, don't miss it. It's a fantastic show. New episodes of Dare We Say drop every Thursday wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we got another announcement, Dan. You already know, all of us, that we're huge fans of Carrie Uma shoes. I wear them all the time. been wearing them for years and years and years. The only shoes that I wear. Um, now... We are excited to announce that Crooked and Karayuma have collaborated on two awesome pairs of shoes that listeners of Pod Save America will love. You can order your pairs today in the Crooked store. And as always, a portion of the proceeds from these shoes and any item you buy in our store goes to Vote Riders, the leading organization focused on voter ID. Uh, so one design features an I Voted sticker uh, that's all over the shoe. And one is a sleek white pair that says no steps back on the side uh, that I am wearing right now. I wore it in Nashville. I wore these shoes in Nashville. I wore them in Tennessee. They're uh, fantastic. Check them out. Claim your pair at crooked.com slash kicks. Dan, have you gotten your pair yet? No, I I check the mail every day. It doesn't arrive. (laughs) (laughs) Someone send Dan a pair of Kariumas? I would wear them, and I would actually prove it by showing them on camera, unlike you, who could be wearing... I mean, I, I can't get my. Well, that's you're like, you're for, you're over that. forty now. It's a, it's flexibility is the <laughs> first thing to go. To, I skipped leg day. Um, oh, they, okay, they panned out to see if they could get your shoes. No such luck. <laughs> they, no such luck at the table. Anyway, I'm wearing them. I promise. Uh, all right, let's get to the news. Hours after Joe Biden signed a bill that will lower the cost of healthcare and prescription drugs, crack down on billionaire tax cheats, and do more to fight climate change than any government has in history. Here was a headline in the New York Times. Even on Biden's big day, he's still in Trump's long shadow. Subhead. For the sitting president, even a triumphant ceremony to sign major domestic legislation can hardly break through the nonstop attention on his predecessor. Dan just took a deep breath. I don't know if the sigh came through in the audio, but there's a deep breath. Dan, you want to give a uh, a quick take appreciator rating before we dive in? The scale does not go high enough for this. <laughs> I mean, I just, when I saw that, when you saw the headline, we knew we we knew who the author was, right? We knew who the writer was. 
is a, is a Peter Baker special. <laughs> yes. Look, Peter Baker is a very, very smart guy. He is probably, if not the one of the most respected reporters in Washington. He's been around for a very long time. I can only... He stars in the documentary that uh, that I'm about to uh, interview Alex Holder about. He's uh, he's in Alex's documentary. Did he storm the Capitol? He ne- <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! No, no he's, yes. one of the, he's one of the one of the people interviewed. <laughs> it comes up quite a bit. Yeah. He, but anyhow, the only way that I think someone as smart as Peter Baker could write a story this obviously stupid is two <laughs> possibilities. One, his brain briefly left his body. That may, that could happen. Two, this was a very specific and devious plot to murder me specifically by setting my <laughs> blood pressure skyrocketing through the moon. I told Dan, that Dan had this somewhere in the outline, and I was like, I think we, we should just start with this. And Dan said that um, he was he, there's, there was not enough coffee to get himself ready <laughs> the coffee for this to start with this take. Yes, <laughs> yes. I am on a one coffee a day regimen these days, and I went up to one and a half coffee just to be fully prepared for this moment. <laughs> so be prepared. I just like I know we don't want to del- like go down a rabbit hole here, but I just want to say that mm-hmm. nothing makes me more crazy than re- the media passively covering the things the media has control over. Mm. This is a story about <laughs> Donald Trump overshadowing Joe Biden, written by the people who are covering Donald Trump and forcing him to overshadow Joe Biden. And they are proving the point of the article by writing a story of, about Trump overshadowing Joe Biden, therefore overshadowing Joe Biden on his big day on that day. Like, you people have agency here. He doesn't have to overshadow him. That's a choice you made. You can't, it'd be like if Peter Baker went out and sprayed graffiti on the White House and then wrote a story about vandalism afflicting the Biden administration. <laughs> it's like, you did it. You're responsible for this. <sighs> um, so I want to come to the defense of my friend and colleague, Peter Baker. <laughs> I'm a serious journalist. Um, no, but in all, in all seriousness, let's, I want to talk about the actual challenge here for the Biden administration, because while it pains me deeply to admit that Peter Baker has a point, the news, the story, that particular story, of course, ridiculous, of course, right? But the, But going forward, the news tends to cover what's new, there won't be many more developments in the Inflation Reduction Act story. It will no longer be new. We've got the passage. We've got the signing ceremony, maybe a celebration here and there. Then it's over. Um, there are constant developments in the Trump did crime story. We are going to cover them next. We're not covering them first because we have agency, Dan. We're going to talk about the Inflation <laughs> Reduction Act first. But how, how do Democrats in the White House make sure people know what's in this bill and keep this story alive, even though the media will not be covering it for much longer. Yeah, I. You are correct that there is a kernel, there is a reality at the core of this Peter Baker story, which is Donald Trump is omnipresent. To date, Biden has had trouble breaking through. Those two things are true. Like I said, just a little self-examination would have really benefited that story. Um, but this, <laughs> there is a there is a challenge for the White House. And so the question is, this was a huge accomplishment. How do you let people know about your huge accomplishment in time to have them vote with that accomplishment in mind in November? And so Jen, Jenna Malley Dillon, who was Biden's campaign manager and the White House deputy chief of staff, and Anita Dunn, who is their senior advisor and sort of like messaging guru, wrote this memo to Ron Klain that 
found its way, I'm sure not by accident at all, into Politico. And they list a whole bunch of things they're doing. It's a it's a well thought out plan. I have written many of those memos over the years. I, everything yeah. in their memo, I would do. I think it's the right thing to do. These but days, you call them you call them message box. Yeah, message box <laughs> yes. It's now they're public. Yeah. Yes, instead of just leaking them to, I I cut out the middleman. Right, instead of giving it, <laughs> slipping it. To Ryan Lizza, I just I sent it out to the world, right? I call me Mister Mister, the most transparent memo writer in history. Um, anywho, I like I said, I'm overcaffeinated. Um, there's like I think the to the extent I have any advice on how Democrats should deal with this, and I think it's not just the Biden White House; it's every Democrat on the ballot mm-hmm. everywhere, House, Senate, Governor, dog catcher, whatever, is a couple of things. One, when we think about our media strategy about how to get people to to know about this, we have to work backwards from the audience. How do the people we need to reach get the information? And the people we need to reach are people who are largely deciding whether they're going to vote or not, right? And I think one core group here is young people who we know care Mm -hmm. passionately about climate. We also know they are the group that has moved most dramatically against Biden since 2020 in terms of approval rating. And so here you have this huge accomplishment. How do you make sure they know? So you got to work backwards based on where they get their information, what media outlets, what platforms, what who, what influencers, all of that. Because what we know is that traditional, no amount of like Rose Garden ceremonies, trips to Ohio to, you know, unveil some grant that was, uh, you know, that's covered by the local news is going to reach those people. So how do you reach them? Related to that, imperative number two is come on Pots of America. Like... <laughs> That is true. It, I that mean, is it true. is. I mean, that that is the answer to all things. And I'm. Hey, Joe. Hey, Joe. I'm, come on. I'm somewhat on, kidding. America. I'm somewhat kidding, but not really. Which is, in a world in which where you say the media won't cover new things, you have to over-index your media strategy on outlets who will give you the opportunity to tell your story on your terms to your people. So whether that's Podsafe America, other progressive outlets, you have to do that. Next is have to recognize that if the media won't cover what happened in the past, what their true bias is, the thing they thirst for is conflict. Yeah, so I was going to say don't that. talk about talk about what you did, but spend just as much time talking about what Republicans tried to stop you from doing or what they voted against. And so lean into it. And there is this report I read somewhere or I made up in my head. I'm not entirely sure which. And I'm sure someone with Google can figure it out that Biden's going to give a big speech in a couple of weeks that is going to sort of lay out the contrast for the midterm. So that's good. And the last thing is, like Peter Baker, we have agency. Right? We can go tell people about it. We don't have to wait for the New York Times. We can decide whether Biden gets overshadowed by Trump by sharing with our friends, posting on social, et cetera. And I think it's it's uh, it's key to figure out what the most popular parts of the bill are, how to talk about the bill, right? Like I've struggled with this too. It's it's the you know the the the, the biggest investment in climate change in history. Um, but when you look at, you know, the uh, Navigator research has some polling out this morning on the most popular parts of the bill, and it's very simple and not very sexy, uh, lowering healthcare costs, lowering prescription drug costs, lowering energy bills, lowering families' energy bills by $1,800, which is what the bill will do, uh, is more popular and more effective than talking about sweeping climate action. Now, sweeping climate action and the biggest climate investment ever 
it, you know, that could be more effective with some of the younger voters that you were just talking about. But I do think for most people in the country hearing that these investments in clean energy are actually going to lower their energy bills because clean energy is cheaper than dirty energy at this point um, is going to make a big difference with people. But look, I think it's a huge challenge. I All the focus groups I did for the wilderness were before the Inflation Reduction Act passed, except for the last one I just did in Atlanta. I stayed in Atlanta to do one after our show. And um, whew, we got some work to do <laughs> with those voters. It was it was nine voters around a table, and I they were complaining that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats hadn't done anything. Uh, these people do not like Republicans at all. They think they're extreme. There's no chance they'll vote for Brian Kemp or any Republicans. But they were very unhappy with, with Joe Biden and the Democrats. And I said, well, have you heard about um, the, the bill that Congress just passed that, that President Biden's about to sign tomorrow? And one person in the group had heard about it. And everyone else was surprised by that. That person started saying, I think it's something about health care and climate. And they're like, what? He did something on climate finally? I didn't know that. No one knew. And this is while it was in the news. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is ultimately the huge challenge is if you were communicating through traditional press, you're reaching no one who has not already decided about whether they're going to vote and who they're going to vote for. And like those people are not, they're not watching CNN. They're not reading the New York Times. They're not on Twitter. And that's why we have to think you know, more creatively. This is really hard, right? It's absolutely really hard. It's really hard. I think that um, I, I think that the Biden administration has been doing this or maybe I'm just imagining it. But like, you know, calculators about what it means for you, how much money you're going to save on either with ACA subsidies, with prescription drugs, on energy bills. Like, I think just ha having done all these focus groups, people are most interested in like, of course, what's going to make a difference in my life? How is this going to change my life? Because I, I did get some comments over the course of the focus groups like, oh, there was this big infrastructure bill that passed, but all the roads in my in my state are still broken. And all the, all the, there's too many potholes still. And why don't I see anything from the infrastructure bill has changed anything? I heard it was going to do stuff and it hasn't done anything. And I do think there's this, this hunger out there for government to do something that's going to improve their lives in some measurable way. Now, the challenge with this bill is a lot of the provisions that are going to make a difference for people aren't going to take effect for a while. But letting people know what's coming to them and what's going to happen, you know, I think that's going to be really important for the Biden administration to get out there. And every Democrat, like you said, and all of us, we all have agency here. All right. So now we did that. Now we can go to the Trump did crime story. Because Joe Biden is overshadowing Trump's criminality. Is that a problem for Democrats? Tune in next week at <laughs> The New York Times. So there are quite a few new developments worth talking about. Uh, in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, we learned that the Justice Department is still investigating Trump's decision to hide nuclear secrets in his beach house. Um, they said that they're still interviewing witnesses, uh, including former White House counsel Patsy Baloney and his deputy. There's a report about that. We also learned that one reason the FBI finally got a search warrant is that they saw something alarming on the Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage that they subpoenaed. Uh, in Georgia, we learned that Trump's former attorney, Mr. Rudolph Giuliani, has been told that he's a target of the criminal investigation into the attempt to overturn the last election. Uh, he he sat with the grand jury yesterday. They finally got Rudy to testify. We also learned that uh, his buddy, Lindsey Graham, has been ordered by a federal judge to testify. Uh, Graham is appealing that because he doesn't want to testify. Uh, and in New York, we learned that Alan Weisselberg, Trump's longtime chief financial officer, just pled guilty to all 15 felonies he's been charged with related to the tax scheme he ran for Trump's business. <laughs> a lot of, lot of potential crimes there. 
and and real crimes uh, that that <laughs> in the case of Alan Weisselberg. Dan, we also learned that Trump is apparently having a hard time finding a lawyer who's willing to represent him in all this mess, which I thought was funny because on one hand, Trump is is having a hard time finding a lawyer who's willing to represent him. On the other hand, we found out that Shane Goldmarker at the New York Times reported that he there were two days over the last couple of weeks since the FBI search warrant where he raised a million dollars from donors on each day, which are like the two best days he's had in a long, long time in fundraising. So having a real hard time getting a lawyer to represent him for his legal troubles, but on the political side, uh, his Republican support and the money that's coming in from Republicans has never been better. What's What's going on there? Well, I think you could probably break it down like this, is that no Republican elected official or party official who has backed Donald Trump through any of his crimes, dating back five, six years now, has paid a real political price for having done so. Right. There is the the people who pay the price, as we will talk about in the next segment, are the people who oppose Trump. Now, for attorneys, that is something different. The you mentioned Rudy Giuliani is a target of a criminal investigation. How did he find himself in that position by being Donald Trump's attorney? And it just and it is not because Donald Trump is likely guilty. We should be very clear about that. Guilty people deserve representation, of course. And rich, guilty, particularly rich, guilty white men never have trouble getting attorneys. Right. That happens all the time. What is unique about Trump is I think he is such a terribly dangerous client that he keeps getting if you try to defend Trump from his crimes, you somehow become a participant in his crimes. Like take the example of the affidavit that was signed that claimed that all of the materials that the Art National Archives wanted had been returned when they absolutely had not. That is probably because, and I'm speculating here, Trump told his attorneys that they had all been returned. So his attorney put their name on a legally binding document saying that. And so in general, most lawyers don't want to end up on the other side. Like they don't have to go hire their own attorney from doing this. And so I think Trump is a uniquely dangerous client. Now, obviously, John Eastman, he's, he's, Trump- he's a crime super spreader. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you get near him, you get, you get the crime on you. Yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, I do. I thought that the in the Mar-a-Lago investigation, I th- so the government. The DOJ basically said they do not want to unseal the affidavit, which is basically the evidence that led the judge to uh, issue the search warrant to the FBI, which uh, Trump and the press both asked for them to unseal the affidavit. And the reason is they said disclosure of the government's affidavit at this stage would also likely chill future cooperation by witnesses whose assistance may be sought as this investigation progresses. And it could also harm, quote, other high profile investigations as well. I thought that was pretty interesting because there there was this thought at the beginning after the search was conducted, OK, maybe DOJ is just interested in getting and, and DOD and the federal government in general just interested in getting all of their classified information back. And once they have it back, leave Trump alone and that's that. It seems that either if they're continuing the investigation, either there's a potential they may bring charges or there's more they they believe there's more classified information they still don't have back or like they just said hinted there there are other investigations somehow connected to the mar-a-lago investigation that are all wrapped up together that they don't want to tip their hand on what did you think it's very intriguing john and i'm excited to see what happens i'll tell you that (laughs) it's (laughs) 
I mean, who knows, right? It is like, I think it at least says that Trump's legal jeopardy did not end at the raid. That there is, he is like, obviously, he's got legal jeopardy in multiple jurisdictions for multiple crimes in multiple places. <laughs> but in this specific crime that is currently overshadowing Joe Biden's tremendous record of success, he is not out of the woods yet. <laughs> I think that is that is, is interesting and notable and, you know, problematic what? for for Trump. There's reports that he wants to um, release the surveillance tape, the surveillance footage of the FBI conducting the search at Mar-a-Lago. Apparently, the FBI, when they started conducting the search, Trump and, the, and his family was watching from New York. They were watching the surveillance footage and the FBI told them to shut it off and they said no, they decided not to shut it off and they just watched the the, the search anyway. And now Trump wants to release that footage. Why do you think he wants to release that footage? I can't imagine there's anything interesting there, but some of the reporting around this has said that the reason that Trump allies want to do this is they think it will further excite and inflame the Trump base because you would see, you know, FBI agents, whatever terrible Nazi or jackbooted thug analogy these right wing lunatics are using, to, you know, roaming around his beach house. I don't know why that that would be interesting, but I think they think it's just like more content that makes it seem like ultimately what Trump wants to be is a martyr. He wants to be a victim. He wants to be a victim. Grievance, yeah. And this yeah. is this would be a piece of evidence that would dominate right-wing media. It would rally people to his defense. You know, some of the people who came out there right away who have since backed away as turns out that every single thing he said from the day of the raid for was a lie will come back out because this will be a moment to express support for Trump. So I, and it's not going to help his legal case. I don't think it's necessarily going to help his larger political case, but I think it will likely mean more $1 million days in online donations for his scam pack that he uses to pay for his legal defense. I don't think it's going to help his political case with the with the general electorate by any means, but clearly he's just running a Republican primary here. And he wants to, like you said, he wants to be the victim because if he's the victim, then Republicans will feel forced to rally around him. Like, I went through... I've thought that from the beginning that like Trump is going to run and he's going to be the nominee again. Then there was like a period where I briefly flirted with the idea that maybe Ron DeSantis could take this guy down. And I was waiting for the moment that Trump announced for president and to see how Ron DeSantis would react to that. But a a similar moment came where the FBI searches Mar-a-Lago and Ron DeSantis is just like, there's no daylight between him and Trump. He just goes right out. Like, he, I thought he had a chance to separate himself just a little bit on this. And no one did. No one in the Republican Party, except for the, you know, the usuals that we're about to talk about, separated themselves from Trump, no matter how bad the facts get for him around this, which m- leads me now to think, like, I, d- I don't know. I don't think anyone can take this guy down. I don't think any of them are willing to do it. That may be. That absolutely may be. Now, Ron DeSantis has a complicated political calculus right now, which is, although he is favored, he is up for re-election in a few months. And were he to separate himself from Donald Trump on an FBI raid taking place in Ron DeSantis' state, and Donald yeah, Trump were to actively turn against him, then I think that I, he's still favored. But that, like, I understand why he did not do that. The question will be, what you know? What happens the minute after the votes are counted if he wins re-election? How does he navigate Trump then? But yeah. so I don't. I th- he's still obviously a huge favorite um, to win the nomination yeah. were he to run again. But I don't know that what happened this past week tells us a ton about at least how Ron DeSantis would run against him. 
Well, one Republican who separated himself from Trump this week is uh, our boy Mike Pence of Hang Mike Pence fame. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't put that in the outline. It made me laugh. Um, (laughs) Pence is back in the news for, uh, gave a speech, told Republicans to stop attacking the FBI, uh, and also said that he would consider an invitation to testify before the January 6th committee when asked by a reporter what he would do if they reached out. Um, what do you think's going on there? I mean, the Occam's Racer explanation for all things involving Mike Pence is that he's one of the dumbest people in American public life. <laughs> like, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of strategy happening there. I mean, you know, let's just presume for a second that he is less dumb than everyone knows he to be. Were Trump to run, his chances of winning a nomination against Trump are minuscule. They are zero if he doesn't do something to differentiate himself from Trump. Right. He has to make a case against Trump. He would still lose, most likely, but it's his only shot. And so I think his like the acceptance of Mike Pence as something other than a national joke comes from the fact that Trump tried to murder him and failed. Yeah. And so testifying at January like, and you see like the, the Wall Street Journal editorial board in some like donor Republican donor world and sort of MAGA adjacent establishment folks have come around on Mike Pence in part because of what happened on January 6th and that he stood strong that day and with the heroic task of not committing treason that was doomed to fail. Um, So I think that he's probably sort of like riding that a little bit, what that actually, he's definitely not testifying in in a live hearing. He's not about to be Cassidy Hutchinson or, uh, Or, yeah, he and Liz Cheney are going to team up together in the next January. Cheney Pence. I mean, it's just, it's such a small constituency as we're about to talk about with, with, with Cheney for Republicans who like Pence's case is basically, I'm everything you loved about the Trump administration without all the character flaws or the charisma (laughs) or the charisma. Right. Exactly. But that's, that's my point. Right. It's like, no, no, no. People aren't people aren't supporting Trump. The MAGA base doesn't love the accomplishments of the fucking Trump administration. They're not that they're like singing the praises about the Abraham Accords. <laughs> that's not, that's Tommy not doesn't even drawing. know you said that, but somewhere I, his head just exploded. <laughs> I know, I know. That's not that's not why they're there. They're there for the character flaws. They're there because yeah. he's an asshole and yeah. he's like stirring up grievance and anger and resentment. That's what they love. It's crazy. Pence might have some new competition, though, in the race to be the anti-Trump Republican in 2024. Our queen, Liz Cheney, (laughs) said on Wednesday that she's thinking about running for president. This is after Cheney lost her Wyoming primary against Republican lawyer Harriet Hageman on Tuesday by 66 to 29 percent. That's a lot. That's a a big loss. But the next day, uh, Cheney hinted that she's not done with politics during an interview with Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show. Let's listen. I will be doing whatever it takes to keep Donald Trump out of the Oval Office. Well, I know you didn't say yes or no, and that's fine if you're thinking about it. But are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but uh, but it is something that I uh, I'm thinking about, and I'll make a decision uh, in the coming months. Dan, are you uh, are you heading to Cheyenne to run this thing, or what? I presume we're all going together, right? We're getting the gang back together again. <laughs> Maybe, you know, Jackson Hole's nice. <laughs> yeah. Set up camp there. That is, that's exactly what a bunch of resistance liberals would do, where they would know, put the shady headquarters. Don't don't even the little do not, the little blue dot in my. <laughs> yes, we need to be. Where can we get a chai latte? We need to be within one mile of a chai latte. <laughs> Assuming that. 
Liz Cheney is both smart, which I think she is, and genuinely wants to stop Trump from becoming president again, which I think she does. How would this work? Is this a good idea? What what could she be thinking here? It wouldn't work, John. That's <laughs> no, I mean, look, I think I think this whole thing is a very fascinating intellectual exercise, which is probably where yeah. it tops out in terms of significance. But like, here's how the here are the various scenarios where this happens. One is Trump runs, DeSantis runs, a bunch of Republicans run, and she joins that field. Is there an in a large multi-candidate field? Is there are there enough hardcore conservative Bush Cheney Republic anti-Trump Republicans to absolutely give something? No, there's absolutely not. I mean, she got 29% in a state where her family are political royalty. So it's going to be very different in Iowa or South Carolina or somewhere like that. The Cheneys are have been political royalty in that state for a half a century. Another world is Trump doesn't run. Then there is no that then there's no lane for her, right? Her lane is anti-Trump, end of gender, you know, like stopping big lies. Like it's not, there's or there's no reason to run. And the next one is everyone else takes a pass. Your theory on Ron DeSantis bears out, and it's just Trump and Cheney, right? And maybe there's some other like third tier or fourth tier Yahoos, but those are the two people. In that case, I don't think there would be a single RNC debate. I think the RNC would not hold the debate if the only two significant candidates were Trump and Cheney. I think they, I think, or the I, I, I heard that they're flirting with requiring every candidate who participates in the debate to sign a loyalty pledge that they will ultimately support the nominee, in which case they think that Liz Cheney would not sign that pledge because she will not ultimately support Trump. Yeah. And I think that the party would probably pass a resolution saying she was not a, not a Republican. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they just yeah, they're not going to fuck around with this. They're just. I mean, they, I mean, the, le- legitimate. <laughs> no, Liz Cheney allowed. <laughs> the decision to hold primaries are, are in most cases decided by the party, so they could. I think there's a legitimate chance South Carolina would cancel its primary if it was Cheney Trump. Now, what is interesting here, and what I think is savvy about it, is Cheney's going to be in Congress for another four months. This hearing has given her this huge platform. As long as she is talking about running for president. She is going to have a platform at once she's out of Congress, once the January 6th hearing committee is over, at least her participation is over, to make a large public case about Trump. Like pretending to run for president or contemplating running for president will give her media access to the media, give her a place to make the case. And if she wants to make the case to Republicans, independents, Biden Republicans, et cetera, that returning to to Donald Trump is deeply dangerous, she will have the ability to do that. I I think this is a decision to have a platform not to be president. What about the possibility of a third party run? You can talk about that one. I that that would be one way. Third party runs are always very hard. She'd have to join probably an existing party that has ballot access like the Libertarian Party. Yeah, um, so she runs on the Libertarian on the Libertarian ticket. I think that or, it, or or she gets on the ballots because uh fucking no labels has raised a bunch of money to for Mansion Cheney. <laughs> Cheney Mansion. Cheney Yang. I don't, will she be on the forward party ticket? <laughs> um, I think there'd be real risk there. And we we like we don't know enough about the political environment. It all, it all depends on what if Biden's running, what his approval rating is, who the Democrat is. But there's real risk that a an anti-Trump conservative could suck just enough voters in these battleground states that are more Republican than the national average yeah. and tip them. I mean, who's a No, she would drop is- out in that scenario. Like this is not a Howard Schultz sort of situation. This is the danger of, of 
of her on the ballot everywhere and as a third party uh, candidate is that she like who is a Liz Cheney voter? It's either uh, like you said, a conservative Republican, probably college educated from the Bush Bush Cheney era who just was sick of Trump. Those people are few and far between. A lot of them have already just crossed over to vote for Joe Biden in the last election, if not in 2016 and 2020. Um, so the, the the number of them that are still Republican are, are few. Or, again, it's people who now have been voting Democrat who for the last several elections who were like, well, I'm kind of sick of Democrats and I don't like Trump, but Liz Cheney and that that would pull votes away from Biden. I'd be particularly worried in states with, you know, a lot more college educated voters that are turning bluer like an Arizona like a Georgia, I think Liz Cheney on the ticket as as third party in those states could really spoil the election for the Democrats. The question is, are there red states where she she just gets on the ballot in some red states that a Democrat would never win anyway, and she's on the ballot so she spoils, so she makes sure that Trump can't win that state. Um, or she, she just takes enough votes away from Trump in like a redder state to spoil the election for him and then helps helps the Democrat. That's that's the there's like some math there that could work in a redder state. It's hard because the, I could probably only identify two states off the top of my head where that Utah. is possible. Well, you actually I take that three. That's a good point. Utah is one interesting one just because it's a very unique electorate, but it would probably be North Carolina and Texas. Um, because it's mm-hmm. Democrats tend to win state, the battleground states that we won in 2020 and we need to win in 2024 were all incredibly close. The states we lost, we lost by pretty large margins. So you would have to really suck up a huge swath of voters. I mean, the math in the South is really interesting where you have a very, very large, uh, black population that makes up a huge yeah. percentage of Democrats, but you would have to really, you have to get to like Ross Perot, like numbers to go back to 1992 to really be you to drive someone's win number into the low forties, which is what Ross Perot did that created the math environment where Bill Clinton could become president with a pretty overwhelming electoral college margin without coming anywhere near getting 50% of the vote nationally. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's pretty tough. Do you think Liz Cheney's primary law says anything about the Republican party that we didn't already know? No, I don't. No, I, I looked at that <laughs> question Trump's on the outline party. for a long time, and I was very curious uh, if you had any thoughts on it. But it's it is the I think the one thing you if you look at the all of the primaries that have happened today, because we're getting kind of to the end here, is that you can win a Republican primary if Trump is against you, but you cannot win a Republican primary if you are against Trump. And that is yeah. a that is a relatively important. That's why Brian Kemp won and Liz Cheney lost. And she lost by a lot. And I just think the constituency out there in the Republican Party for candidates who want to run specifically against Trump, like you said, is just it's too small. It's too small. And, you know, like you said, in a state where the Cheneys are political royalty. Um, All right. When we come back, filmmaker Alex Holder talks about his new documentary on the final days of Trump's presidency. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down, not do what generations of New Englanders have done, just stuff their feelings down, maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No, you got to talk to someone, you got to work it out, get it off your chest. And just by doing that, you will feel better. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Welcome back. We're joined today in studio by Alex Holder, a filmmaker whose new documentary about Trump's final days in office, Unprecedented, was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee because of how much access to the Trump family he had. Alex, welcome to the pod. So nice to be here. It's nice to have you. Um, So Trump, Ivanka, Don Jr., Eric, Jared, all sat down for multiple interviews with you between sort of like the final months of the campaign and a couple months after Trump left office. And they did so knowing that they had no control over the project at all. Why? why do you, how did you get them to agree to that? So I think at, when we first started, they were pretty convinced they were going to win the election. And some of them still think that they won. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> Famously so. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but they, they were, this was going to be a repeat of the 2016 election all over again. The pollsters were all wrong. And you know, Don Jr.'s favorite line was during the campaign was, let's make liberals cry again which I always thought was pretty cruel and not that funny. No. Uh, but uh, a lot of it, uh, watching the documentary, a lot of his jokes are just terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really bad. <laughs> really bad. Um, and he sort of, I think he, he laughs a lot at his own jokes. Yeah. And, so, and then people then laugh because he's laughing, I think, because, <laughs> yeah, he's just a bit of a moron. But um, I mean, yeah, so, so they, they thought that they were going to win. And also I was somebody that wasn't part of the, mainstream media i guess right like i'm a british guy foreign didn't really have any political skin in the game so why not have this sort of random british dude film us win the election and i think the third was uh was was actually the the british accent i mean they (laughs) they they they, trump is obsessed with the queen that's right he's absolutely obsessed i mean mean, almost on every occasion i met him he would always bring the queen up and i i wonder whether or not there's you know, he feels like the Trump family are like a quasi, I'm sure you is. know, like royal dynastic, you know, family perhaps. But I'm sure also the, like the simplicity of his brain is just like guy with British accent, bring up queen. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Right? That's all he's got. Yeah. I mean, with Eric, actually, it was guy with British accent. Have you been to the golf course in Scotland? 
<laughs> I always got business on his mind. So you first sat down with Trump in December 2020 after he lost. What was his state of mind at that point? And do you think he actually believed he won or did he seem like he was full of shit? I mean, he's, he's certainly full of shit, but he also believes, and he also believes that he won. I mean, and which I think was is actually really important because, you know, there's to be so delusional and still be you know, the president of the United States of America, the incumbent, the, the commander in chief. I mean, the guy with the fucking nuclear football was literally standing behind me in the, the diplomatic reception room. Yeah. Whilst he is literally you know, reading out of how to be a totalitarian you know, dictator. You know, we need to find brave judges that agree with my position. Right. So, you know, he convinced himself of the lie. But I mean, just that interview in its own right was extraordinary. I mean, I didn't think it was going to happen. I mean, this is a month after the election. He wasn't giving interviews to anybody. And we're outside the White House, you know, the Secret Service doing all the checks and everything. We go inside. And, and I still didn't think he was going to come. And then I, the, re, uh, the moment I knew he was on his way was when the Secret Service all started moving around. And then I heard them say, mogul on the move. Mm, yeah. And at that point, it was like, oh, really? This is actually happening. And he sits down and... Yeah, it was just an, an extraordinary experience in the sense of, oh, this is the White House. He's the the incumbent president of the United States of America. And there's that very famous George Washington painting looking down at him. And he is literally undermining democracy. And it was just, when I said this on the Seth Meyers show, after the, uh, after the interview, I sort of held onto a wall because I was so taken aback by what had actually happened. Because there's a big difference between him doing his... Yeah, the rhetoric at a campaign rally yeah. to actually sitting in the White House and saying the bullshit that he was saying. Well, that I was going to ask because, you know, there's like a very famous anonymous quote that was given to the Washington Post uh, in the weeks after the election where some senior Republican official said, like, just let him have his fun. What do you think he's going to he's not going to leave? I mean, he's going to leave eventually. He's it's, it's fine. Just let him burn himself out, whatever. And famously that uh, almost didn't happen at what point while you were making this documentary did you start thinking to yourself oh shit this could go really badly and maybe he's going to try not to leave and things could things could uh could go south pretty fast honestly after that interview i mean that that interview really was quite extraordinary because he just wouldn't stop talking about how the election was won by him and he wasn't just saying why he thought he won it he was actually coming up with remedies to show how it was stolen from him. So he was talking about how the Georgia officials need to reopen the votes to compare the signatures. And he was saying that the Secretary of State and the, uh, the governor of, of Georgia were, were stupid people because they weren't agreeing with his position. And actually, we need to you know, open this up and move it to the, you know, to the state legislature because they agree with him. And he was saying, you know, we need to find the right judges, et cetera. So it was, it, it, there was no way that, that this wasn't going to get more and more serious as time moved on. That was, at least that's what I was thinking. So, yeah. You, you interviewed him for uh, a second time at Mar-a-Lago a few months after he left office. What was he like then? So it was a very different personality. He was much more depressed. He was, he was angry and depressed. When I met him in the White House, he was sort of angry, but quite assertive. Whereas in Mar-a-Lago, he was angry and depressed. And the reason he was depressed, I found out one of his aides told me before he came in, he was in a really bad mood because he was going through 
uh, withdrawal from not being able to use Twitter. <laughs> like so actual withdrawal. Literally, that was the words that she used, that he was going through a withdrawal. So, um, and, and he, he had put on weight and, I mean, he's a big guy anyway, but yeah. he had really sort of put on weight and he was very down. And um, so he, it was so funny. He walks into Mar-a-Lago and there's this hideous painting of, of him from like, you know, 30, about 30 years ago, like an oil painting of him. And, uh, and I wanted to include that in the shot, but I wasn't sure whether or not they would be embarrassed of us including that in the shot. But we did it anyway, and they were so happy that we included it in the shot. Anyway, he walks in, and I'm like, hello, Mr. President, and he completely ignores me, and he starts talking about, like, isn't this the most beautiful floor you've ever seen? I mean, it's just, it's a very, I mean, Mar-a-Lago is stunning, but... The floor. I mean, it was just. He just needs constant, constant positive yeah. feedback about it, anything. Exactly. He's you know, just he sits down. Empty and, hole. And then we're, not, we're we're doing literally. I mean, we're doing the uh, the small talk. And I said last time uh, we we spoke was at the White House, and he's like, oh, but this is much more beautiful than the White House. Yeah. I mean, and he uh, he believes that absolutely. Did it? Did Mar-a-Lago seem like a safe place to keep nuclear secrets? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a members club that you play <laughs> golf. I mean, it's probably the worst place you would ever keep. Uh, uh, secrets. Yeah, uh, what's the security like there? I mean, obviously there's the uh, Secret Service security, but it's much less than when he's at the White House. But and that's just around him, really. Exactly. I mean, I was able to walk around the place totally. We were sort of left to our own devices. So I mean, it was not at all secure. And yeah, at one point in the interview, we were interrupted because the members of the public that are at this club were making a noise and Trump was like, tell them to shut up. I was like, yeah. I mean, it is just, but it's so typical Trump to believe that these documents belong to him, right? I mean, he's just... I was going to say, do you have a theory, having spent so much time with him, do you have a theory as to why he would take classified info with him to Mar-a-Lago and not just take it with them like, oh, by accident, but then be asked for it back by the government, by federal agents and refuse to give it all back? Yeah, I mean, it's because his name's on it and he thinks it's his. I mean, you know, he's just as simple as that. The thing with Trump is, is that he really is just a very simple, quite strange, dumb guy. I mean, with yeah. due respect. I mean, Occam's razor yeah. on this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, you know he... And a good sense of um, how to entertain people and a good sense of television and a good sense of how, to, how, how to rile people up. Um, but I think beyond that, there's not a lot. Oh, there's no substance at all. I mean, there's no substance even when he's doing the things that he's quite good at, I would say. As in, like, he's just a very, he's very basic. But, I mean, he kept talking about Kim Jong-un all the way through all these interviews. And you know, those are the, the letters that he had between the two of them. That In his mind, they, they are his letters. And so, obviously, they should be in his in his house. You testified before the January 6th committee. Um, uh, you did a dep- deposition. They had subpoenaed some footage. What was the focus of the committee's questions? I think they were obviously surprised about the fact that we had this access and no one knew about it. I mean, the Trumps knew about it and the people around them, and they claim they didn't know about it, which was obviously ridiculous because we were always there and and very present. But I think they were surprised by the access. I think they were interested in... Uh, you know, the footage that we captured on January 6th, which wasn't with the family. We were just, you know, we were in D.C. and, and it, you know, that was a horrific day. And we captured this moment of one of Trump's own supporters essentially being crushed to death on the steps of the Capitol. Um, I mean, he's totally obviously responsible for that in, in every single way. And so I think they were very you know, interested in that footage and, and also just what people were doing at various times as well in the lead up to it and the people around them as well. So they were, they were interested in a lot of sort of the behind the scenes of what was going on whilst we were interviewing 
the president and others. Was there footage that they were looking for that didn't make it into the final documentary? Because I watched the documentary last night and by the way, very compelling, well done. Though I kept looking for something that was going to be like a revelation in terms of what the January 6th commission is investigating. And I didn't, maybe I'm, I'm very in the weeds on everything, but I didn't notice anything. And I was wondering if there was a bunch of footage that didn't make it in that the committee found interesting. So there's a bun- there is a lot of footage that didn't make it in. I imagine, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. I mean, I think look, you know, they have their own sort of narrative and and you know, sort of agenda that they want to you know, sort of look at, and you know, they have everything, and they'll probably pick the pieces that they think they need or what they're interested. Did, in. did you get a sense of lines of inquiry from the committee that surprised you, or where they were heading, or areas they were looking for that we all haven't seen on in prime time over the last several months? No, no, no. I think it was all, I mean, they were very straightforward. And, and I think that it was very, they were very sort of direct with their questions and very engaged. And uh, and I, it was very clear how important this was. Uh, I mean, for me, at least, when I go in there and, you know, sitting down and I'm now talking to probably the most consequential you know, political investigations in Watergate. And I'm just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I mean, you know, so it was, uh, it was it, it, they definitely showed the importance of what they were doing and, and how this is, this isn't a circus, right? Like this is actually really, I mean, the guy you know, fractured the, the, the foundations of democracy in America. And this is an important investigation to prevent that from ever happening again and yeah. to find out how. So I think that was, that was really the key. And, and that's what they're, they're into finding out. You mentioned Georgia. You're also expected to testify in the case that the Fulton County DA is is bringing the criminal investigation. I keep getting these subpoenas the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> not it. something you would expected when you started a documentary. Absolutely Although not. I guess if you're doing a documentary about the Trump family, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe you do. Exactly. I was probably naive. You expect right? some yeah. subpoenas. Um, what do you think? Um, what parts of your your footage do you think will be important to the grand jury in the Georgia investigation? I know, I know there was a, a small part in the documentary that mentioned that you replayed the call between uh, Raffensperger and and Trump. But are there other parts of the footage? Yeah. So in the first interview with Trump, he talks about Georgia uh, a lot, and some of it's in the doc, and some of it isn't in the doc. But there's there's quite a bit where he is uh, referring to Georgia and, and try. And I think what's interesting is that the phone call actually took place almost exactly a month after that interview. So you can sort of see, you know, it, this wasn't just like a spur of the moment thing. I mean, he was really convinced that you know, they needed to find these 11,000 votes a month earlier. So he'd been plotting that for a while. It, it seems like that's the case. Yeah. That's okay. You know, I think you probably it's, it seems from the documentary that you set out to do a documentary about the Trump family dynamics uh, with the children. You know, we've all come to know uh, Trump's children as like caricatures. Does that the caricatures that we all have of the, the Trump children, do they hold up in real life? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know, Eric just sort of wants my this is, this is obviously my take on all this. Right. But like Eric just wants us all to stop. I think he just wants to. My take on your your uh, <laughs> how you portrayed Eric is like. You tried to give him a story. He doesn't have much of a story. <laughs> Literally. <yeah. laughs> Which is what everyone thinks. He's always just like, yeah, he's sort of interested in business and now he's in politics and he's just exactly. Eric. Like, and, nothing else. And, and yeah, and my dad's my best friend, you know. <laughs> I mean <laughs> And then you've got Don Jr., who just I, I found him so hilarious. I mean, dangerous but also very hilarious. I mean, you know, he his political awakening is having gone to back then Czechoslovakia to to be with his uh, his grandparents. And 
you know, he, he was uh, complaining about how he couldn't wear his uh, American flag, you no know, jean jacket. And he was so scared that that could happen in America. So that's why he is now this, you know, staunch right-wing Republican to prevent, you know, the idea of, you know, communist. I mean, it's just so ridiculous that, you know, when they say these things, you have to try and not laugh. Um, and then obviously when he talks about how, you know, the state of journalism is so bad that he wrote a book that he was very proud of. So uh, I... I found the Don Jr. stuff very interesting, somewhat frightening because I do think he's sort of the biggest political threat in the family in the future. And I hadn't realized the whole backstory there until I watched the doc that, you know, Ivanka's always the, been the favorite child. Trump's always proud of her because she's polished and successful and everything he wants the Trump brand to be. And he was always a little bit embarrassed by Don Jr. because Don Jr. was what we now think of as Trumpier. He was closer to the base. He exactly. loved guns, loved shooting, was more MAGA than any of the other children. And so Don Jr. then uses that during the campaign to sort of outmaneuver out Ivanka as uh, to try to be the new favorite kid. And in is arguably closer to the MAGA base than his father or any of the children. Absolutely. I mean, it's hilarious how they... At the end of the day, all they want is their father's attention, right? Which I mean, is clear, yeah. And, and you know, and America suffered because of that, right? I mean, that's basically what it was, right? Yeah. It was a family-run business where the three eldest children were all trying to outmaneuver each other, and you know, I mean, and, and they're running the country for all intents and purposes. I mean, it's extraordinary, and and I don't think you know, at best, they just didn't understand what the fuck they were doing. I mean, at worst, they did, and and we'll find out. But, right? You know, it, it was just it's just incompetence and not understanding how dangerous the rhetoric is when when you have such a large platform and you know including the children right they just didn't understand what they were doing or 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 if they did understand what they were doing they were, they were obviously very bad people yeah um we all have a particular loathing for Jared Kushner here uh, at, at, at Crooked. Uh, he's got a he's got a new book out, fantastic review in the New York Times. If everyone hasn't read it yet, um, what was your take on Jared? I mean, Jared is. It was actually so interesting because he came across as somebody who genuinely believed that he had a right to be in the position that he was in. And I just found that so fascinating. I mean, of all the things that, you know, to come across as, right? To, to come across as somebody who, who has the audacity to think that he deserved to be in that position that he was in. And I mean, the fact, like the only reason he's there is because his wife's dad won the election. Right? I mean, that, right, that, that's no other no other planet would you hire Jared Kushner for something. Right. So, so like, I mean. What, <laughs> that you wanted to succeed in. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, that that for me was pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary. So, yeah, I mean, other than that, he's very, I mean, I always say he's really, I mean, he looked, that, that he's a nice dude. I mean, I, you know, you know, he shook my hand and says thanks, but like he was just sort of impressively unimpressive. Yeah, no, um, a set of dimples without a demographic was the, was yes, the yes, description yeah, yeah, yeah. in the New York Times that really got me. Um, I cannot imagine a scenario where Donald Trump doesn't run again even if he is indicted. I mean, I, I don't think that might make him more likely to run again. Can you imagine a scenario where he doesn't run again? No, so I think he's definitely going to announce that he's going to run. I just don't think he will end up running. You don't? No, I mean, there's a few reasons. Like, One is that the guy lives on a diet of basically Diet Coke and burgers, mm. and he's you know, sort of not the healthiest guy in the world. And, and two is that Trump doesn't normally or ever really in his life do the same thing again when he fails. He pivots to something else. So when businesses fail, you know, casinos, et cetera, he'll move to something else. So I think 
here it's it's a similar situation. Also, look, the first time round, he didn't think he was going to win, right? And it was all part of you know, his whole little game of like just getting media attention, etc. But he won. The idea of being able to maintain that the election was stolen a second time, I don't think even he thinks is potentially... Uh... I don't know. I think if he believes the lie and he's made himself believe the lie that he doesn't he doesn't think he failed in 2020. And so then this is revenge. Sure. But at the same time, I think that he believes the lie that they, you know, they could do it again. Right. And also, look, Trump doesn't understand why people don't like him unless he doesn't like them first. Right. So in his mind, and that's the same with everything. So he doesn't understand why people don't agree with him with respect to the election. So I think, you know, he would potentially be nervous that the same thing could happen again. I mean, it's totally ludicrous. Look, the guy, it's just extraordinary. I mean, the guy, I think we all, in some ways, assume that he is a rational player. And we sort of then sort of rank him to that, right? Like, we sort of assume that we can actually... Sort of ascribe strategy. Exactly. Yeah. Like, he really, he, he's on a different, he's in a different dimension. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the, he does not exist in this, in this reality whatsoever. I, my last question on this is just, you know, you spent so much time not only with... Trump and the family, but at events with all of these Trump fans, voters, did you come away with a better understanding of the appeal of Donald Trump to the, you know, however many million Americans voted for him at the end? Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, he's the guy that stands up on the stage and says, I'm going to give you everything you want. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's the simplest way of getting people. I mean, he's the populist, right? He's the yeah. demagogue. So, you know, you have X problem. I'm going to fix it for you. And, you know, the, the fact that it's not possible to fix it or you know, he doesn't understand all the issues, uh, you know, is irrelevant, right? Like, I have a problem. I'm your guy to fix it. And people, you know, bought into that. And he's good. I mean, he, you know, when he speaks, it's totally incoherent, right? But actually... What he's doing is he's moving from you know, one aspect to another aspect based on the reactions of the crowd. It's very interesting to see. So you know, if he's talking about, say, in, in I don't know, Kansas, and he'll be you know, doing a, a rally there, and he'll start mentioning, I don't know, how he moved the Israeli embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and there isn't much of a reaction, he'll immediately you know, move from that to, like, we built the biggest wall ever, right? Like, there's no like, connection whatsoever, but, people, but he, he's very good at knowing what, the crowd want and he sort of feeds the crowd the the rhetoric that they applaud and that's what that that's his cocaine essentially yeah and shamelessness i guess is a powerful absolutely powerful weapon in politics i mean well. he he was so brilliant at using the apparatus of the presidency i mean there were moments actually and it was, it's interesting how it wasn't picked up that he was actually like you know kim jong-un in the sense of yeah when you know they all run you know after him when he's in you know when kim jong-un in the car and they all run after him there was this uh there was this rally we were at and the two presidential cars, the beasts, right? Yep. So you've got these two cars that were basically, so the Air Force One lands and, and the cars basically were like moving really slowly whilst he's walking to the stage on either side. And I mean, it was just, and then all the Secret Service around him and everything. And, he, and then the best is that he would time the takeoff of Air Force One to the crescendo of Nessun Dorma. I shit you not. What? Literally, at the end of rallies, he would not allow Air Force One to take off until it reached the crescendo of Ness and Dorma. So basically, you've got that bit you of know, the end of a song, and then suddenly Air Force One like zooms up into the sky. It's such a... I mean, you know, it's extraordinary. He's right? a TV guy. 
He's a TV guy. He's a TV guy. Alex Holder, thank you so much. Uh, the uh, the documentary is unprecedented. Uh, check it out. It's on Discovery Plus, I believe. Yep. Um, thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by Pod Save America. This was fun. It's really fun. Thanks so much. You can live out your Master Chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right. Before we go, we have to talk about the most important and explosive story of the week. A video of Dr. Oz shopping in the produce aisle of Wegmans grocery store that was created and released by his own campaign. Let's take a listen. I thought I'd do some grocery shopping. I'm at Wegner's and my wife wants some vegetables for crudite, right? So here's a broccoli. That's two bucks, not a ton of broccoli there. There's some asparagus. That's four dollars. Yep. Carrots. That's four more dollars. That's ten dollars of vegetables there. And then we need some guacamole. That's four dollars more. And she loves salsa. Yeah, there's salsa there. Six dollars. Must be a shortage of salsa. Guys, that's twenty dollars for crudite. And this doesn't include the tequila. I mean, that's outrageous. And we got Joe Biden to thank for this. What? <laughs> All right, Elijah, are you there? <laughs> we have to tell the story of how this became. Yeah, this became a story. Hi guys, I am here. Hi, Elijah. <laughs> so what? What everyone has to know before we dive into this is this video was not new this week. This video was first released April fourth, twenty twenty two. It is now August. I am told. I forget which month it is. <laughs> Elijah, what? How did this? How did this come to be? Yeah, so we were in Atlanta doing our live show, and we had a little bit of downtime, you know, in between sound check and actually going on stage. And I came back to say what's up to you guys, and y'all's, you know, 
backstage room and I saw there was a veggie platter there and I said something like, I can't see one of these now without thinking about asparagus. And you guys were like, what the hell are you talking about? I couldn't believe that you hadn't <laughs> seen the video. So I showed it to you and love it. Then you guys showed it to Dan and Tommy and then Tommy liked it so much that he tweeted it. And then that got traction. A bunch of libs on Twitter started tweeting it. And then the Fetterman campaign picked it up and then they've raised like half a million dollars this week just off of this awkward crudite video. It that was that's the that's how it became viral. Tommy lifted it up again on Twitter after Elijah couldn't believe we hadn't seen it yet, which I hadn't. And, and mo- turns out most of the country hadn't yet either. Some would hear this story and say, "Kudos to Elijah for making this moment happen." And potentially, like think of all the things Elijah could have done if we if John Fetterman is the 52nd seat in the Senate, like he <laughs> I mean, just voting rights, more climate, like he might have saved the planet. That's one version of the story. The other version of the story is that I have been walking around this on this earth for five months without knowing about this video. And I am fucking I pissed know. about it. And here's the thing. I mean, like, how much more do we need to pay? How much closer do we need to pay attention to politics? It is a sickness. We are on our tw- on fucking Twitter all the time. We talk about this for hours every week. How did we not see this video? John, I do a YouTube show once every two weeks about crazy <laughs> Republican videos that is produced by Elijah. Damn, how have I not seen it? I have what is happening? I have definitely do we sent need you yet this another- video. As you part have of never, you find, need, find the receipts. Do we need yet there another is no Slack way. channel. How many more Slack channels do we need in this? That, that, maybe that's the problem. Maybe we have too many Slack channels. There's some like yeah, fucking <laughs> French snack channel we're unaware of. <laughs> that video stuck in my mind because we were doing research for Political Experts React. Shout out our YouTube. Go subscribe uh, so you never miss an episode. <laughs> but I feel like I must have sent it to you because that's how I came I, across it. If you can prove it through email or Slack or text, I will apologize on next week's pod to you. But up until then, you are on <laughs> probation as far as I'm concerned. Fair. Anyway, the video, the, the substance of the video, let's talk about why it has become such a thing. And John Fetterman has raised half a million dollars off this video. I mean, my my initial reaction, just if I'm being honest, was like, who the hell is dipping their asparagus in salsa or their broccoli in guacamole? That is not a That is not a crudite platter i mean there's also there's calling it crudite versus veggie tray but for me that whatever I, you know i've been known to call it crudite myself once in a while um the 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 collection of shit that he got to put on that platter and then he, and then he throws tequila in there also also it's wegmans is the grocery store <laughs> no it is wegmans is, yes he is merged Wegmans and Revners, two regional grocery stores in the Pennsylvania area, into one called Wegmans, which does not exist. Wegners. 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 Yes. Yeah. Wegners. And, and, Wegners, yes. And the other part of this is like the, he wasn't caught on tape. This was not a caught on, this was not a like I caught you on video moment. This is we produce this video. He says Wegners. He he grabs all this shit in the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> he says it. They put it in a. They put it in a video. They cut the video. They edit the video. They have him saying Wegner's, and they tweet it out. They tweet out the video. They put it out from the campaign. What a campaign! They are great. I mean, that, what a what a fantastic set of advisors he's got. I mean, what a world where, as a campaign, you get together and you create the most devastating negative ad in recent memory. But it turns out it's about your own candidate. <laughs> <laughs> It, it got so bad for Dr. Oz 
that he was interviewed on Newsmax, Newsmax, about this <laughs> crudite gaffe. And here's what happened. Here's what he said. And I mean to fixate on it, but I, I just for those watching in Pennsylvania, you know how particular many people are about their groceries. What happened with Wegmans and Wegners? Can you explain that to them? Yeah, I was exhausted. <laughs> when you're campaigning 18 hours a day, you've, listen, I've gotten my kids' names wrong as well. I don't think that's uh, a measure of someone's ability to lead the Commonwealth. I mean, can we invoke a slaughter rule here? What? This, <laughs> <laughs> like what, what, how bad is this going to get? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're getting grilled on Newsmax about your, your, the grocery store video that your campaign put out, and you're like, sometimes I forget my kids' names. <laughs> I mean, it truly is like he seems like he has never been in a grocery store before. Like he's like an alien from another planet who all they learned about human civilization was from watching Bravo. Like, I don't even understand. I mean, it's just it's I love it. It is so great. If Dr. Oz wins this campaign. People are gonna. There's the people are gonna have a great time looking back on listening to this episode, <laughs> looking at all of our tweets, and but then at that point, like I guess politics is completely broken and nothing nothing matters anymore. <laughs> Look, can he still win this race? Absolutely, of course. of course he can. We have to say that just so that we can put this version of the clip out after everyone dunks on <laughs> what happened in the previous five minutes. Of course, of course he can win. He can. Will he? Who knows. But is he running? I mean, is he running one of the worst campaigns I have seen in all my years in politics? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. He is definitely running a terrible campaign. He is a weird, weird man. It's very possible his campaign hates him. Like there may be moles. There may be moles but, in that campaign. He got in a Twitter fight just last night, Wednesday night, with John Fetterman over over how many um, homes he owns. And someone said that he owns 10 homes. And and Dr. Oz gets on Twitter and he goes, no, no, no. Two homes, 10 properties. <laughs> and so I did Dude, some research. you tweeted that. Well, you don't have – you tweeted it. It You hit the – you put it in a tweet. You hit the tweet button and it went out. Now everyone and knows not you even, have 10 properties. He probably didn't tweet that. Like that was not Dr. Oz because this was a designed – attempt to punch back because he like quote tweeted John Fetterman. He also attacked Fetterman for living with his parents for a while, because if you're not an out of state millionaire, you're somehow a failure, which is not a particularly good message in any state. Yeah, John Fetterman living with his parents while he was mayor of a small town and having a, a like a very low salary. So his parents helped him out. <laughs> like that, yeah, he I was mean, in public service. Yeah. That was what he was doing. <laughs> so like that, like that tweet was, I'm sure si- written by signed off on by a wide array of people who probably make a lot of money as political consultants and social media types. But the thing that's also is I heard like, I was like nine properties. Like, is he like an investor and in like some, Shopping malls somewhere. No, he owns 10 homes. He just only lives in two of them. And it's really an open question if one of the two he's referring to is actually the apartment in Pennsylvania in the town whose name he keeps forgetting because he's never really been there. (laughs) Elijah, could you do us a favor? And if we ever um, film a video like that, could you and the video team and the social media team just not not put it out? Oh, God, we'll ax it. We will lie. We'll say the file got corrupted. We're not doing our jobs uh, if we let that kind of Thank thing you. get out. I think that Dan's right. I think Thank that the, for... there are people on his campaign that might actually hate him. <laughs> I think that's true. There, it could have been infiltrated by some Democrats. Maybe it's like a reverse Project Veritas kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, 
thought you'd all enjoy that. That, that was, was fun. fun. That was fun. Uh, thank you, Elijah, for um, you know helping the Fetterman campaign and potentially saving the country. Uh, and and Tommy for tweeting it. Thanks, Alex Holder, for joining the pod today for talking about his documentary. Everyone, go check it out. Unprecedented. And uh, everyone, have a great weekend. Enjoy your crudite, and we will uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.